We care about our land more than somebody down in Ottawa. A land code puts the First Nation into the power of government. The biggest point for me is your ability to protect your reserves lands. Former chief of our community had the vision to sign uh, and the guts to sign that framework agreement. Business at the pace of business. I think it just proves that First Nations lands management really is working. The good thing about land code, we don't have to sell it. It sells itself. And joining me now on the podcast is Chief Leah George Wilson. Good morning, Chief. Good morning. Bright and early out there on the West Coast. <laughs> yes. Um, as you know, we've been speaking with leaders across the country about uh, this phenomenal land code movement and process. You're now at the 25th anniversary, and I'm wondering what you think about that. I think it's amazing that communities have taken the land code as a tool in their self-government toolbox. It's really wonderful that people can take control of the management of their own land. And you're seeing that growing. I think right now you're on the cusp of having 100 uh, First Nations as operational First Nations under that framework agreement. That's true. Uh, there will be a vote, I think, later in the spring for one community that will make it the 100th. And I'm pretty sure there are like 50 waiting in the queue. For those people across the country who are not that familiar with your community, can you help locate it and put it on the map for us? Certainly. Slouted Nation is located in North Vancouver, British Columbia. We're about 20 minutes in horrific traffic away from the city <laughs> of Vancouver. We live right on Burrard Inlet. And uh, even though we're urban, it's still beautiful where we are. So if you had a dollar for every time you've crossed that bridge, you'd be retired now? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you grew up there, I take it? I did. Born and raised here on uh, Slouchith Indian Reserve number three. Okay. And you went to school there? I went to um, school. I went to public high school. I did a little bit, a couple years at Cap College, a degree at Simon Fraser, and finally a law degree at UBC. I think that was five or six years ago you were called to the bar or thereabouts? Yeah, I was called about five years ago. So can you take me back to the beginning of the land code process in your community? What was going on at the time that led elders and others to want to even consider that? At that time, we'd already gotten into economic development. We had leased land that we were in a partnership building um, market housing. Uh, we had built, a, we had at least one business on in the community and people were thinking about the length of time it was taking to get approvals or to do referendums through Indian Affairs. So our leadership at the time, and I think it was like around 2000, 2001, we were like in the second group of First Nations that went forward in, in the First Nations Land Management Act. That seems to have been a common concern, this massive delay in time between a community might want to entertain some kind of development and then the lag in time before bureaucrats in Ottawa would approve it. 
Yes. Um, our late chief at the time used to say he thinks there's people that work at Indian Affairs that their only job is to carry files from one desk to another <laughs> and not really do anything about it. And that's what it was feeling like. So we wanted to enter into the First Nations Land Management Act and we took it to the people. We created a steering committee. I wasn't in leadership at the time of the steering committee. They did it in a really good way. I was on the steering committee and it had a large number of people like 20 to 22 people on the committee and, and at least half of them were people in their 20s. So the chief at that time wanted to make sure that young people knew what the issues were on our land and how to participate in processes and how to chair meetings essentially. So when we started engaging with the community, it wasn't the leadership that talked about the land code, it was the land code committee. And all of those young people were able to join in at community engagement sessions and let people know what it was about and what it meant and how important it would be for our future. It was really, it was really great. That's really interesting. And I did go on your website and I looked at your, your land code and it's 70 pages long. And uh, I say this with all due respect to lawyers, sometimes legislation and things like this can be uh, difficult to read. So how did you take the essence of that and explain it to people what the practical benefits would be? Uh, we did that in community engagement and those young people explained it and they talked to their family members. Our land code came, was ratified in 2007, I believe. And so it took like a couple of years to develop. And yeah, of course there was legal counsel involved and you can tell by looking at it. So one of the things that we're currently doing is considering the amendments that we would like to make to it and to change the flow of some of the, some of the um, subsections and to make it more understandable to the non-legal minds. Right. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, a, a number of communities seem to have entered the land code process because they want to spur some economic development or commercial development of some kind. And yet other communities have different reasons. Was there something in particular that you were trying to do there that you, that you couldn't? Well, at the time we entered into the process, we were also active in the British Columbia treaty process here. And we were actively negotiating at a tripart table with BC and Canada. And it was taking a really long time. And we knew that this land code is a form of self-government. So we wanted to take as many of those tools down that we could. So we thought, while we're doing this treaty process thing, let's also do this land code thing and see where we can get in terms of managing our own land and our own futures. So a number of communities, I know Jason Campbell out at, I think, Seabird, Seabird Island, was telling me that uh, in his case, environmental protection and protecting sacred areas and traditional territories was very important to them. Is that true in your case as well? 
For sure. Uh, we live in, well, we're actually quite urban and right across the water from us is the terminus of Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline. So we've been opposing the pipeline before it was even a thought in 2009. Our community created our own stewardship policy, which lays out how governments or other entities or companies need to work with Slywichith in terms of things like referrals and how it impacts our land and whether or not we we agree with whatever their development is. So that kind of work, environmental stewardship work and protection of our land has been something that Slywichith has always done. And since about 1995, when we entered the treaty process, we started gathering information about our territory so that we know more about our land than any government that sits across the table from us. I know the first time I started doing research on you uh, and I entered your name into Google, I got a ton of videos of you speaking about the pipeline project that came up right away. Right. And you're still active, I take it. Uh, yes, although our litigation has wrapped up, we're considering our next steps. Your colleague Gordon Planis told me in our interview, he said, the nice thing about the land code is that you don't have to sell it. It sells itself. Now, I, I, I'm a bit suspicious. I think there's more to it than that. Well, people were a little bit afraid of what kind of control they thought it would give council. So it took, you know, people to explain it to them that, no, it's not up to the council. What happens? It's up to you. It's up to you what we put in the land code. And it's up to you who you put in office. And it's up to you about what you want to see in our community. So the code takes you out of all the, the land provisions in the Indian Act. How do you see that evolving over the next decade? Will, the, will you be trying to withdraw yourself from other aspects of the Indian Act? Yes. I think that a number of communities in British Columbia are doing things parallel to what we were doing in the treaty process and what we are doing with the land code. They're considering what other self-government tools are there that we can use. There are First Nations in British Columbia that are um, negotiating self-government agreements with, the, with Canada and with BC. So it's all about finding ways that we can add to the toolbox, how we can help our own communities become self-sufficient and self-governing without signing a treaty agreement in today's, in today's iteration of mm -hmm. treaty agreements are a number of things that people aren't uh, happy with. So we need to find another way. Yeah, as a, a director, I. I I'm assuming you, you're in contact with First Nation communities that maybe are interested in exploring land code as an option. Uh, what's your main selling point when you talk to them? That it takes you out of 25% of the Indian Act, and then it gives you the decision-making power. And it's all about the community. I share with them how the steering committee evolved for Slywatith and how important it was for that community engagement 
because all it takes is one or two naysayers and with social media, the social media wasn't a big thing when we voted, but when people are going to vote now, it's like, it's amazing what happens on social media. Things can light up pretty quickly. <laughs> oh, really quickly. And there's not really a good mechanism to, you know, stop the fire once it's started. So you really have to, people going into land code today have to be really decided about the way, the avenue, the path that they're going to take and how their communication is going to roll out and what engagement is going to look like in in the communities. And that's, uh, communication is like one of the biggest issues, I think, that First Nations communities face. I couldn't agree more. I've been helping a local community here with some of the public relations around land code uh, They're in the developmental phase. And uh, because of COVID and uh, a chief moving on to become regional chief, things are delayed a little bit. Are you seeing that impact too from COVID where things have slowed up a bit? Yes, we, it's harder now to do community engagement. We've done a few because we're also thinking about uh, cannabis. So we want to have negotiations with the province, but, you know, first we needed to talk to the community about what, what we want to do. And we started that conversation before COVID. So we had a couple of community sessions, which was great. And we, you know, had an idea about where people wanted to go, but now we've had to figure out Slido and Zoom and oh, all these other things. It's and trying, oh, Facebook Live is a really, has been a tool that we've used because all of our people, like we don't have connectivity issues generally in the community. So people are really connected on social media. So we use that a lot. When it comes to business development, have you been able to do things in recent years or are you looking at something down the road to help generate more own source revenue? Uh, we actually have a, well, through the land code, we've also done a land use plan and that was a two-year process. And we talked to, we had a committee that was really good. And we talked to the community about what people wanted to see on our land and talked about zoning you know you really have to just stop and explain what zoning is and you want to explain all of the environmental issues and the you know the prohibitions of building right beside a creek or stream for example explain all of that and we did that with uh, school-age children um, average age members and elders and it was really interesting what that kids wanted to see on the reserve, like a swimming pool and a, and a Walmart and a Starbucks. And it was really funny. They haven't asked for a place to play Minecraft or any other. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, they wanted a big soccer field and a recreation kind of place. And Because we don't have, like we have a gymnasium, like a recreation center, but we don't have a, a big field and soccer is really big and in BC. Wow. I saw a video. I think it was you. I couldn't quite tell, but uh, you were in the classroom and a bunch of children were coming up to you. Was that you? Um, that actually could have been my sister. Okay. <laughs> it was someone sitting down. It looked like you were maybe reading a book to the kids and they were coming up and 
you know, be very touchy feely. And I thought, wow, what a tight knit community and uh, you look really cool. Uh, for sure. We are, we only have about 600 members, probably 350 live in the community and before COVID there's always something going on at the gym and when it's nice weather, people are out and about and, you know, we have kids soccer teams, uh, we have a canoe club. So there's lots of community engagement. There's always something going on. And you're right there in the midst of so many beautiful resources too. Uh, has tourism or ecotourism or trails and camping become part of your, uh, part of your culture? In our community, we have, a company, Equitourism company that we launched in, in or around 2000, 2001. And it is ocean going canoe tours and kayak tours. So people go on the ocean going canoe with um, a tour guide that gives local history, uh, shares cultural songs and language and sometimes on the really special trips they get barbecue salmon and you know just talk about you know what's around us and what it meant to our people and we do that out of Kate's Park which is a summer village site for our community uh, we have a, a co-management agreement with the district of North Vancouver so it's called Wayawich in Kate's Park very cool yeah. Are you involved in any forestry operations at all? Uh, yes, we have um, a forestry company called Inlewatash Forest Products. And we do, they do a number of things. Like we do contracting for BC Hydro, like brush clearing. But we also have a woodlot license in the Indian River watershed, which is where we have another little reserve that was a fishing station but we have purchased 779 acres of fee simple tidal land where we have um, the ability to log and have forest tenure there. So you're quite active for a small community. Yeah, we are. And we've been doing that for, I would say about 15 years. We don't just log in our territory. I mean, near our reserve land, but also up in, in and around the Squamish Valley area as well. Yeah, the, uh, I did find a quote on the website where uh, on your band site, it said, your community is setting anger aside over the mistreatment over the years, the colonialism. And now it's important to find creative ways to move forward. We have been really fortunate in that we've always had good, solid leadership. And when we started to come into these kinds of um, economic development, kinds of thinking. It was in and around 1989, 1990, when we had like eight people working in the band office and we didn't really have an economic development. And our chief of that, at that time decided that, well, we need to have economic development. And he went looking for a business partner because we could bring land to the table, but we couldn't bring the financial piece. So that's what the partner did. And I think that began around 1990 and that was the beginning of our, um, of our lease land and building market housing. Okay. You've got your finger in a lot of different <laughs> areas. Do you have the, do you feel like you have the capacity to, to manage all of that? 
Um, yes, we do, because we've um, grown capacity in the community. Like when we started in the treaty process, we hired somebody to come be our treaty manager. And we've been in it for about five years. And then I became the director of treaty lands and resources, because then, you know, we were evolving. It wasn't just about uh, negotiating at the table. It was about stewardship of our entire territory. It was about ensuring our great uncle who was chief at the time, that was his, that was his mandate to us. We need to put the Slavotov nation face back on our territory. And we're gonna do this through economic development. It's gonna include forestry. It's gonna be ecotourism. It could be treaty, but really it's about how is it that we can have a say in the management of not just our reserve land, but our entire territory. Well, that sounds like a, a great way to end our time together this morning. Absolutely, that's what it's all about. Uh, for those people who'd like to know more or get in touch with you, Chief, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Well, you can look at our website on the internet as well. You could contact our CAO. His email is really easy, cao at <laughs> t-w-n-a-t-i-o-n dot c-a. Good. We'll put all that information in the show notes too, so people will be able to, to link directly. So, Great. And we also have Sacred Trust. That has a website as well, and that's all about our opposition to Trans Mountain Expansion. Great. I really appreciate your time this morning. I, I sense that you're ready to get going and get off to work. So we'll let you go. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was nice to meet you. Join us in the coming weeks as we explore the land code in more detail and the personal journeys of leaders involved in the process. You can visit the website at labrc.com for a wealth of information, and you can follow the Resource Center on Facebook. You can also subscribe to this podcast on all the major platforms. And we'd really appreciate it if you could help get the word out by just telling one colleague about the show. I'm Richard Perry. Thanks for listening.